I've never met anybody who's come to the Redwoods and been like, I don't like this place. Right. People come here and they go, oh my gosh. I mean, atheist people have spiritual experiences out here. I mean, this place is amazing. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who's ever felt an inexplicable kinship with the forest. I'm Michelle Fulner, and today we're talking with Griff Griffith, whose voice you just heard, about the tallest and some would argue most majestic trees in the world, Coast Redwoods. In this episode, we discuss hot pink flying squirrels, old growth forests, OG grandma conservationists, marbled mirrorlets, the overstory and the understory, dinosaurs in the redwoods, stump sprouting, why most people who love the redwoods should plant an oak tree, and what we can do to talk about the natural world in a way that invites more people to fall in love with and take care of the wonders all around us. And speaking of the wonders all around us, the next episode is going to be on the nature you can find right outside your door with the wonderful author and artist Marnie Filling. So make sure you're following the show wherever you listen so you don't miss that or any of the other upcoming gems like seaweed and native bees later in the season. I also want to say thank you to everyone supporting Golden State Naturalist on Patreon for as little as $4 a month. You make this show possible and have allowed me to quit my job and instead spend my time following biologists around in the forest with a microphone so I can learn about this incredibly special state and then bring that learning to you in these episodes. If you want to be part of the wonderful community that's on Patreon or join our patrons-only book club, you can find me at www.patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner. That's Michelle with two L's and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. If you want different ways to support the show, I got those for you too. You can rate or review on Apple Podcasts, or possibly the best thing you can do is share your favorite episode with a friend. Maybe it's a nature curious friend, or maybe it's someone who's just trying to get away from quite as much screen time, or someone who needs something to listen to while they take their dog for a walk. Growing the show means that more people are getting connected with the natural world all around them, and it just means so much to me when you tell your friends about it. So thank you if you're already doing that. You can find me at Golden State Naturalist on both Instagram and TikTok. I've had a few videos get some traction on Instagram lately, which is really exciting. So it's a great time to go and join the party over there. And I try to make videos that complement or expand on ideas covered in the podcast. So I think you'll really like those if you're enjoying the podcast. My website is goldenstatenaturalist.com, which is also where you can find podcast merch if you want a mug or a sweatshirt or t-shirt or tote with the beautiful bear and poppies art by Danza Davis. But now let's get to the episode. Griff Griffith has extensive experience in almost every imaginable aspect of conservation, from restoring coastal dunes, meadows, and salmon habitat to creating bioblitzes and training the next generation of land stewards in the California Conservation Corps. He hosted the Animal Planet show Wild Jobs in 2018, and more recently has been interviewed on live TV by Kelly Clarkson, and had his work featured on Good Morning America, The Today Show, and so many more. Griff is an advocate for an inclusive outdoors, host of the brand new Jumpstart Nature podcast, and spokesperson for Redwoods Rising, a partnership among the state and national parks, Save the Redwoods League, and the Yurok Tribe, all working to restore previously logged forests in the Redwood State and National Parks. Griff is a fantastic dancer, captivating storyteller, viral video wizard, and one of the warmest human beings you could ever hope to meet. So without further ado, let's hear from Griff Griffith on Golden State Naturalist.
When I was up in Humboldt County this spring, Griff was in the middle of moving, and I knew we weren't going to be able to hike around a redwood forest together. But I still wanted to take you outside with me to give you a sense of being there in the forest. So I grabbed my boots and handheld recorder, hopped in the car, and drove just a short distance amidst the asphalt, brake lights, and the smell of exhaust I'm so used to experiencing in my daily life. On the way to a stand of old second growth forest, just five minutes away from my Airbnb in Arcata. I was in a rush that morning, stressed because I had a full day planned and I knew I had to move quickly to make it to everything. But then I got out of the car and I was greeted by ferns, redwood sorrel, and the warm tone of redwood bark that I can never quite capture with a camera. And it was like someone had loosened a pressure valve right in my prefrontal cortex. All of the tension I didn't realize I'd been holding in my shoulders and my jaw diffused off of me like a vapor and faded away into the cool, moist air. I walked the wide, gently sloping trail for a while, stopping here and there to record birdsong or burbling water. I found banana slugs, salamanders, and red flowering currants. Pacific trillium with its three strikingly white petals bloomed everywhere I looked. I got lost for a while and then annoyed an older gentleman by asking for directions without knowing the name of the road where I'd parked my car. But I wandered back the right way eventually, admiring nurse logs overgrown with moss and huckleberries along the way. There was so much to take in there in the forest, but I knew I was only seeing a fraction of what Griff would notice. So I hopped back in the car and navigated well off the beaten path, past herds of Roosevelt elk and miles of redwood forest to the coordinates he'd sent me, and eventually landed at his front door. We, are. we made it. I made yep. it to your place. Griff took yes. a break from opening moving boxes. Are you pretty set up. I'm still unpacking. To make yeah. each of us a cup of tea. And we got settled on the couch to talk about magical toads, surprising historical champions of the redwoods, the wood wide web, Hyperion, and so much more. All of that after a quick break. And now onto the full interview. Well, would you mind introducing yourself? I'm Griff Griffith. I'm a lifelong conservationist, which is why I'm on this podcast. Mm -hmm. And I have been in love with nature and restoring it and conserving it ever since I was three years old. And my grandmother introduced me to a toad who lived underneath of a broken pot that she had in her backyard in a mobile home park, in this urban mobile home park oh that was covered in pavement. And when I was three or four years old, it's one of my earliest memories. Like, you know, I was still in the big head stage, so I'm still wobbling down the steps, holding her, you know, from the mobile home, holding her hand. And she's like, I can call toads. And I was like, wow, what a a magical power grandma has. And she made this weird sound. And she's like, go look under the pot. And I went and there was a toad. And I have been in love. That's magic. I have been in love. My grandma was also a major gardener. She had the only plot of like life in Uh. this mobile home park. So growing up, I noticed when I went to her house, you know, to cross all this pavement. When I got to her house, there was butterflies and bees and birds, but not after I left there. And so I made that correlation really quick that grandma had magical powers. And then later on, as I grew up, I realized that grandma just had native plants, flowers, <laughs> water features, habitat, piles of wood, and she just knew. And she was like the first environmentalist I've ever met, even though she never called herself an environmentalist, because she grew up homeless during the Depression. And she was like this Irish, you know, her parents were Irish immigrants, or her grandparents, excuse me. And so she recycled 
fixed everything. She saved every bread bag and every bed twisty. There was drawers full of rubber bands. There was boxes full of those bread twisties. And so she was doing that, but she was also composting everything. She had a worm garden and she grew almost all their own food. And she would send, me and her would go continue with the, to the toads thing. We would go to creeks and I'd catch toads and salamanders and snakes and bring them back and release them in her garden because she wanted them to eat the bugs and the snails. So I learned conservation from her and my mother, her daughter, who was very similar. Wow, so you're doing this like amazing ecosystem creation mm -hmm. <laughs> at, at this really young age. Oh yeah, her. oh yeah. I could tell a million stories about oh, me and my grandma, yeah. That's amazing, oh my God. I love her, that's so OG. So how did you go from the kid with the toad to ending up working here with redwood trees? So skipping forward 40 some years, just a, uh, just a small skip here. So I am in an acting position right now for being the communications. I don't even think there's a title for it yet. Mm -hmm. Like, but basically the communicator, main communicator, I call myself the storyteller of Redwoods Rising. When we recorded this interview, Griff was the acting spokesperson for Redwoods Rising, but now he officially has the role. So it's one of the biggest restoration projects ever, ever. Okay. And it's the biggest pro Redwood restoration project by far ever, ever. And inside of it are a bunch of other little restoration projects, salmon habitat restoration, road removals, and all kinds of stuff, you know, marble murelet, and all this interesting stuff. Basically, it's a project that's covering, there's 120,000 acres of Redwood National and State Parks. Mm -hmm. Okay. So up here in Del Norte and part of Northern Humboldt County. And almost 80,000 acres of that is actually second growth and third growth. Okay, hold on. What are second and third growth? So second growth is what grows back after an old growth forest has been logged. And third growth is what comes back after a forest has been logged twice. So it's the third growth of that forest. But then what is old growth? This one's a little more complicated. I looked it up and the Sempervirens Fund, which fun fact is the oldest land trust in California and has a long history of protecting redwoods in the Santa Cruz mountains, has an interesting segment about this on their website. They point out that there are actually several different ways of defining old growth. They say a lumber company may define old growth by grain or board feet, others by age, and some by diameter. Okay, but another way of looking at it is to look at old growth characteristics, the qualities or attributes that are found in old growth forests. So here's the more nuanced way Sempervirens looks at old growth. And I think this whole thing is valuable, so I'm going to read it to you from their website. The term old growth generally describes larger trees, usually at least 3.3 feet in diameter and over 200 feet tall with certain features that only develop in older trees, such as plate-like bark, larger branches, broken tops, platforms, dead tops, basal hollows carved out by fire, and reiterated crowns, meaning trunks off of trunks. Features like these that typically take a coast redwood 200 years or more to develop support many species and contribute to the tree's resilience to fire, drought, and climate change. They go on to say that conversely, from a conservation standpoint, age alone is not always the best indicator of old growth status. Although a redwood can live to be 2,000 years old, 
Some may say 200 years old qualifies as old growth status. However, it's possible for a redwood to live 200 years without developing old growth characteristics if it doesn't have optimal conditions to reach its full potential. For example, a redwood tree in a city park may live to be 200 years old without developing old growth characteristics like size because it doesn't have the space to spread its roots 100 feet from its base, or it lacks neighboring redwoods roots to provide anchoring and nutrients or fog is absent, and water cannot meet a redwood's highest reaches. So old growth isn't just about the age or size of the trees. It's this whole collection of features that only develop under the right circumstances and after enough time. So old growth redwood forests are extremely special and rare, partly because they only grow along the central to north coast of California and nowhere else in the world, except a tiny toe into Oregon, and also because the vast majority of old growth redwood has already been logged. Griff gives his definition of old growth later in the episode, and it overlaps a lot with this definition. But the way he puts it is great and a really helpful way of thinking about it, so listen out for that. Okay, so go talk about redwood forests at a cocktail party and sound really smart doing it. Back to what Redwoods Rising is doing with the 80,000 acres of second and third growth forests in Humboldt and Del Norte counties. So we own that property, Mm. we meaning all of you who are listening and you and me, We own this property, and so what the managers are trying to do, Save the Redwood League, Redwood National Park, State Parks, and the Yurok Tribe, are trying to speed up Mm. the successional process so that we get old growth characteristics sooner because there's only 4.4%, but only 4.4% of like contiguous like islands of old growth redwood forest left. And their species, specialized species, depend on that 4%. But 4% is not enough because these are little islands. And so the, and there's roads crossing through them, introducing predators and invasive species, including diseases like sudden oak death and all these other kinds of things. And so it's this fragmented habitat is crumbling. And so if we don't connect it and help it out, we're going to lose a lot of species. And we're going to lose these wonderful, ancient, unparalleled, uncomparable forests. There's nothing like the redwood forest anywhere else on the planet, not even close. And I mean, just the biomass alone, it's got the highest biomass of anywhere else in the world. And people are like, more than the Amazon? Yes, more than the Amazon. (laughs) And it sequesters more carbon than anywhere else. More than the giant sequoias in the Sierras? Yes, more than the giant sequoias in Sierras. It, it is the carbon sequestration and biomass champions, not to mention tallest trees and all the other groovy things that you can hear about going on any kind of basic tour. But there's so much more to an old growth redwood forest. And we just now are, I mean, we're still discovering things about it. We don't even know. Like people think and assume that we know everything about the redwood forest. We just discovered a species of flying squirrel five years ago that lives. Five years in, ago? Yes, the Humboldt flying squirrel. What? I mean, and, and, that's a, and that's a squirrel. Yeah. And so like, we don't know everything about <laughs> the redwoods yet. I mean, there's so much, there's so much more to learn. And we got ourselves in this horrible predicament by waiting until we had 4% left. And you know, my hero, Laura Mahan, she, she lived in the late 1800s, died in the 20s. She's my hero. She saved a one out of four old growth redwood trees. And she did most of her work before women had the right to vote. Mm. Okay, she was amazing, Laura Mahan. In the 1910s, the decade before women could vote in the United States, Laura Mahan was organizing, mainly through the women's clubs she was a part of, to get the city of Eureka to designate redwood groves as city parks. 
And according to the National Park Service, Mahan's most famous act on behalf of the Redwoods occurred in 1924. On November 10th, loggers from the Pacific Lumber Company began working in a redwood grove that the court had protected from logging for the rest of the year. When Mahan heard about this, she rallied fellow female environmentalists, rushed to the grove, and along with the other women, put herself between the machinery and the trees. Because of the women's high profile in the community, the loggers were forced to stop while Mahan's husband gathered the local media and filed an injunction against the company. The local community rallied around this cause, and the grove was preserved. And Mahan's descendants are still fundraising for the protection of Redwoods to this day, which is a super cool legacy. And she was one of the original people to speak out against the logging of the Redwood Forest. And there was 80% of the old growth forest when she started wow. sounding the alarm. 80%. And sometimes I think, what if Laura Mahan wouldn't have existed? We wouldn't have any Redwood. If it wasn't for Save the Redwood League, like Laura Mahan and Save the Redwood League, we wouldn't have any left. I am so sure about that. Because I remember during Redwood Summer in the 1990s, uh, when we were protesting the logging of the Redwood Forest, I remember the corporate head talking heads being like, you guys need to compromise. 4%? That's not a compromise. That's refugees. You know, these, red, these, these redwoods here are refugees. <laughs> like, this, there's no compromise. So, luckily, President Carter expanded Redwood National Park. Mm -hmm. And luckily, Save the Redwood League um, was able to bring a bunch of matching funds. And we've bought a lot of this log over land. And the lumber companies knew that this was happening. And so there was a law that was passed in their favor that said, if, if the tree's on the ground, you can log it. But after, after like three months from now or a year from now or whatever, mm. you can't do that. So you already know what happened, oh, right? Oh, I see this coming. They yeah. cut down every tree and just left it on the ground so they could go back and, and log them. And so they ended up, ended up clear cutting a lot of the land that we were trying to buy. And so by the time we bought that land, there was only 9,000 acres of old growth forest left and several thousand acres had been lost. So, and creeks destroyed and salmon fisheries destroyed and all this stuff destroyed. And so uh, we're trying to fix that. And we're trying to fix that in this very remote location that's kind of out of the view of most people. Yeah. So we have to make people care. So thank you very much for interviewing me because this is helping me get the word out. Because sometimes I say, we're out here and I wish somebody would. You know, like, we're like, we're like out here in the cuts. And so it's hard to get this message across. And people, I mean, I've never met anybody who's come to the Redwoods and been like, I don't like this place. People come here and they go, oh my gosh. I mean, people have spiritual, atheist people have spiritual experiences out here. I mean, this place is amazing. Seriously, you know? I was actually, literally, that's one of my questions for you mm. because it is such a spiritual experience i just went for a hike because i knew we weren't going to be able to meet up in the mm -hmm. in the forest mm -hmm. i went for a hike this morning and mm -hmm. just like recorded some sounds oh yeah like it's and it's you know second growth or mm -hmm. maybe third i'm not sure it's mm -hmm. um arcata community uh forest, forest. yeah old second growth okay. so arcata community forest is old second growth and that's actually more rare than old growth really yeah because they've logged most of the old second growth like again multiple. yeah oh wow so old second growth is even more rare okay. and so that's almost old growth there it was beautiful. Yeah, it's And beautiful. there were some really big trees. I could see where there were even bigger ones as stumps. Mm -hmm. So I could see some of the remnants mm -hmm. out there. But yeah, I just went and recorded like some bird sounds. And you know, every time I've gone to the Redwoods, it's, it is. It's like a super moving mm -hmm. experience, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that is still true for you having lived out here and worked out here for mm -hmm. so long. Like, is it still that moving for you? You know, I have lived in the old growth Redwood Forest at several different points in my life. And the answer is yes. 
And here's why. It's because it's like, what's a good analogy? It's like the more you get to know someone that you really, really love, the more you appreciate them on some new levels. And that's kind of what it is with the Redwoods. Like I'm, you know, in reading a lot of the research that's coming out, because there's some amazing researchers out there, you know, and, and Steve Slett being one of them, who's been featured in the book, The Wild Trees and stuff. And there's many, many others, but I just finished that book. So he's oh, the first nice. name yeah, that yeah, came. Yeah. But he discovered like a whole nother ecosystem of the canopies. Just the canopy stuff. And so when I learned about that, all of a sudden my neck hurts because I'm looking up so much. I'm like, maybe I'll see something cool. But I won't be, I won't be climbing those trees though. No, not your thing? No, no, no. no. (laughs) I could barely get up on a ladder. Oh, Step ladder. (laughs) (laughs) I I am not going up that high. (laughs) Yeah. But you can look at the, you can download the Redwood Coast Canopy app. Ooh. And you, so you can see Steve Slut up in there looking at the many things that are up there because nice. the magical thing about redwoods that makes them different from a lot of other trees is that they don't get smaller and smaller branched mm. as you get higher. Mm-hmm. Actually, the higher you get, the bigger a lot of the branches Whoa. get. And they, and they become very thick. Redwoods have billions of leaves. Okay, So up there with all those big branches, those leaves fall off. And they get caught in the crotches of these branches, mm-hmm. and over time they become soil. Plus, there's a lot of things breaking them down. It's very wet, so they become soil really fast. And then a bird flies up there, and it's singing its beautiful song. And then when it gets done, it goes <laughs> and it poops out a seed. And so from the berries, that's the whole purpose of berries is to you know get the the plants trying to get its babies away from it, so it doesn't have to compete with them for food, water, and sunlight. So. The bird poops up there and then you have like a salmonberry or a blackberry or a huckleberry growing or a salal. And then you have these wandering salamanders that climb up the bark and they can live several generations up at the top of these trees amongst these salal, amongst this garden that's 300 feet up in the sky. And then we just discovered that there's a Humboldt flying squirrel up there. We knew there was northern flying squirrels, but there's a Humboldt flying squirrel up there that glows pink in UV light. So if I was to climb top of a rubber mm-hmm. tree and see this garden 300 feet now. I'm taking a black light with me because yes. I want to see the pink flying squirrel. I don't know why. It's <laughs> <That's> amazing. <laughs> but why? a t-shirt of that. I want to know how they found out that, that they were like, oh, a new flying squirrel. Quick, get the UV light. Let's see if it's pink. <laughs> Let's try you know? that. But these, these squirrels live up there in, in this canopy and there's all these other interesting things live up in the canopy. There's copepods, which are like a little tiny shrimp. It's like the most prevalent life form in the ocean that whales eat and stuff. Because there's pools of water or something? Is, is there... I haven't read anything that convinces me how they got up there. Wow. So if anybody else knows, please put it in the comments or something. I'm going to keep researching and I'm, I'm meeting with scientists this week and I'm going to be like, how the copepods get up there? Yeah. Like, did a marble mirrorlet poop them out? Because you know the marble uh-huh. mirrorlets eat in the ocean. So that's a great. Point. I hope anything that involves poop is totally entertaining to me. So I hope that's the reason. Oh yeah, yeah. that's fascinating. Not anything. Let me take that back. But like the seed dispersal mechanism. So if there was a shrimp dispersal mechanism, because we know ducks can poop out ducks can poop out um, fish eggs, and the fish mm-hmm. will hatch. So maybe copepods. Well, and some of these some of these little invertebrates have teeny tiny little eggs too. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like seeds getting stuck to fur. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Get stuck to a bird's leg. Yeah, yeah. Seed like a dispersal egg yeah. dispersal mechanism. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe that, and then they go hatch somewhere else. Yeah, including three hundred feet up in a redwood tree. Yeah. Why not? See, it's got a good view. It's got a great view. <laughs> and there's probably way less predators. Well, I don't know. If that's true. But, oh yeah. Yeah, the yeah. canopy's got its own thing going on. But that's the kind of things that keep me re-inspired in the redwoods. Mm-hmm. And um, also sometimes I'll just, I have a great imagination. 
And so sometimes I'll be like, this tree's 2,000 years old. I wonder what it's seen. And so I'll think about like, depending on where I'm at, like, so here it would be like, a, there would probably like a Talawa girl who lived 700 years ago who sang songs, you know, around it. Or right. maybe some little Talawa kid made friends with this particular tree a thousand years ago. You know, so it's like, what has it seen? You know, and, uh, sometimes I'll tell, uh, I have a lot of Christian friends and family, and sometimes like I see them missing out on the sacredness of the redwoods. Mm-hmm. Like, they're into it, but they're not realizing they're not. It's not sacred enough, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You guys yeah. need to, you guys need to appreciate this a little bit more. So I'll say, this tree may have been a seedling when Jesus was on the planet, and then they go, oh, and I'm like, doesn't that make it sacred? And they're like, yes, it does. So there's like, you can, if you use your imagination and, and think about these trees and these forests, you can make it relate to almost anybody's experience because it's one of the oldest, biggest things that's ever been on the planet. Mm-hmm. It's mind boggling in a million different ways. And it relates, it has a relationship with so many different organisms too. Yes, yes. And, and so I'm curious about that. You go into... You go to see the giant sequoias, mm-hmm. and you're in a mixed conifer forest. Mm-hmm. But you go to a redwood forest, and it is mostly redwoods, yes. right? And then, but then there's all these other organisms. Yes. So just because it's mostly redwoods doesn't mean it's not biodiverse. Yeah. So can you talk about a little bit of the biodiversity in a redwood forest? It's biodiverse in a different way, and we didn't understand biodiversity in a redwood coastal forest until. A lot of the, like the last 20 years of mm. researchers started really doing their thing. Most of them funded by Save the Redwood League. So when you go into old growth redwood forest, it's really quiet. There's not a lot of bird song. There's like varied thrush and hermit thrush and a couple of others. But it's, there's not a lot of insects because redwoods don't host a lot of insects. Okay, it's, they're not like oak trees. Oak trees are like right. bird feeders. Redwoods aren't. Redwoods only host, I think... There's one insect that lays its eggs on redwoods. Wow. Yeah, it's like, it's really, it's minimal. So there aren't a lot of birds there. There's not a lot of the macro diversity. Mm-hmm. And there's only berries for parts of the year. And so the birds will pass through and eat those and the bears will pass through and eat those, but it's not super diverse. And the streams around here aren't very diverse. It's mm-hmm. not like the East Coast streams. These are much, much younger streams. And most of the things that live here, most of the fish that live here, are anadromous or like were in the ocean not too long ago mm-hmm. in geologic time. So it's not super diverse streams either. So like the macro diversity, I guess you'd call it, is not super impressive. But you start talking about lichens and mosses mm-hmm. and mites and millipedes and arthropods and things like that, it gets, it gets a lot more diverse. What you have more in an old growth forest is specialized species. Mm. And you have, you have species that don't exist anywhere else or don't exist in high numbers anywhere else. So that's what the old growth redwoods have going on for them. Can you talk about one or two of the specialists? Yes. So one of them would be marble mirrorlets. And they don't necessarily just, just specialize in redwood forests. They specialize in tall okay. tree forest, like old growth forest. And they're a seabird that we didn't know where they nested until recently, like a couple decades ago or a decade ago or something. We didn't know where marble mirrorlets nested. And they are an amazing species that feeds the ocean all day, comes into the redwoods and lays an egg on a, on a really high branch, just one. And they, they fly so fast. That's how I recognize them. People are like, how do you spot the marble mirrorlets so quickly? And I'm like, because they're fast. Yeah. They're like a potato with wings that are that's zooming through the sky. It's a bird's <laughs> plane. No, it's a marble mirrorlet. 
And, and, and one of the cool things, I've never seen this happen. I would love to see this happen, but they can't like slow down their flight and then land in the tree like normal birds. So they have to go towards the bottom and then go to the base of a redwood tree and then head up it to, to, to have gravity slow them down so they can land on the branch where their baby's at and then regurgitate the fish or whatever. But that baby bird is sitting there all day by itself. So it's a really interesting bird with crazy life ways. And one of my favorite stories about, about murrelets up here was that there was a, a campfire program. So it's something that the rangers do. And they and one of them was talking about, you know, to families. And so they mm -hmm. was talking to family about marbled murrelets and showed a picture. And there was a little girl there who the next day came up and she had a box and she's like, I found a marbled murrelet. And so the rangers were like, oh, poor Jay in this box. You know, this little girl yeah, did yeah. not find a marbled murrelet. Right. And they opened a box and it was a marbled murrelet baby Stop. that fell out of its nest. <gasps> and so they were able to climb back up the nest and put it back. I think I was just blown away that this little girl was like, yes. I found a marble <laughs> she the day after she had the, yeah, the day after she That's had the amazing. campfire program. Yeah. Power of education. Power of education. So these birds depended on old growth forests, and so they're not doing well in California, and they're, they're listed as an endangered species. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the specialists. I, I have actually, I'm going to stop you right there because I have a listener question about marble mirrorlets. So Melissa is wondering about them and climate change. Do you, can you talk about that at all? Like, is there something going on with climate change with marble mirrorlets? Well, you know, I am not for certain about that. Yeah. I know that climate change right now looks like it's making trees taller. Whoa. Redwoods like carbon. They sequester it better than anybody else. And so they've been, their growth rates have increased a lot in the last 15, 20 years. It's another, it's more evidence for carbon being in the atmosphere. You know, mm -hmm. more, you know, I, I'm so tired of people saying they don't. <laughs> But it's like, our red ones even growing faster. Come on, give us a break here. Like, what else do we have to prove? But so I think that tall trees and redwood trees growing faster will benefit the, the marble murrelets. Okay. As long as the summer fog patterns don't change. Right. Because that would spell doom. Because for, then how do they get water to the top of that? Is that is, don't they take in water through their leaves? They can take water through the leaves. And just recently, some researchers found out that that's with the help of a, a fungi that's on the leaves. Ooh. Yeah, to help them get the water into the stomata, How cool. the holes in the leaves. So they get about 25% of their, like this is generalization, but like 25%, depending on where you're at, get change of their water from fog. And they, and scientists can tell that by the, by the isotopes. They can tell what is coming from fog, what is coming from rain. And so 25% is hugely significant. And this is a Mediterranean region. So without that summer fog, it'd be hot and dry. Mm. And redwoods in hot and dry summers don't get this height, which means they wouldn't be any good for marble murrelets. Right. The redwoods in Sacramento are not looking great. Oh, no. Let me just tell you. No, and people stop planting one redwood. Like, I can't stand it that all these visitor centers up here sell redwoods. Like, I just want to tell them to stop. Mm -hmm. Because when people go back to suburbia and plant their one redwood, they have very shallow roots, people. Mm -hmm. Don't plant them near your house. Plant them near your neighbor's house because they're going <laughs> to blow down. And, 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 the, and redwoods with lots of water and lots of sun grow very, very fast. They're one of the oh. fastest growing trees. Wow. So, like... People don't realize that because they think, oh, it took them 2,000 years to get this big. No, in the shade didn't. of the big trees. Yeah. Well, in, the, in the shade of trees, they grow much, much lower. Yeah. But like if they have, if they, ha they get tall first. So in 150, 200 years, they could be 300 foot tall. Wow. And then they get fat. It's kind of like me. What happened to me? I got tall first and then I got fat. <laughs> Same thing with redwoods. You know, so they get bigger and wider the older they get. Yeah. But you're right, if they're, if they're grown in shade, you can have an ancient tree that's not very big okay. if it's been in tons okay. of shade. And you know? then if you have multiple of them, their roots interlock. 
and that yes. keeps them from falling yeah, as I always, easily. Yeah, think about that. You probably are too young to know, but in the 80s, Michael Jackson got a bunch of famous people together and they sing, we are the world, we are the children, that, yeah. and they, hurt, they <laughs> hold hands. And I always think about that when I think about Redwood Roots because they're all like holding on to each other underneath the ground. Oh, so, nice. Yeah, and that's how they stay up. Otherwise, the wind would blow them down. So when you plant just one and it has full sun and you're watering it, it can get 50 feet tall in 25 years easily. And then, so you're like, well, it won't be around in 25 years. Someone's going to have to pay for that redwood tree to be removed or it's going to fall on their house. And that happens more often than people mm. know. Be safe. Don't do that. So I'm curious about where these trees grow because it's a narrow little part of the planet. Yeah. That coast redwood trees grow on or naturally. Now. Now. Okay, let's talk about that. They used to be in Greenland. They used to be in Europe. They used to be in Ireland, where my people are from. They used to be all over the Northern Hemisphere. How long ago? We're talking a million years okay, ago. Okay. Yeah. And in some places, less. And so, like, climate changed. Mm -hmm. Climate is always changing. So that's why I like to call our recent climate change, I like to call it climate disruption. Mm -hmm. I heard someone else say that, and I was like, that's what that's it is. That's great. Yeah, because it's anthropogenically disrupted. Right. So there was, like, 12 species of redwoods. And then there was two, and there was two because we thought the third one went extinct, and then we found it again in like the 40s or 50s. Oh. So that's the Metasequoia, that's the, so the Dawn, Dawn Redwood, Redwood. Okay. yeah, in China. And so we found that, so we had three. And the Metasequoia was all over the place too. Mm. And so they all just shrank into these like little islands of where they've been able to hold out. And so, you know, waiting for the climate to get back to this wet, warm type of climate that they, they enjoy and then they can spread out again. That's how things work. Mm -hmm. You know, they expand and contract if they don't go extinct. So the, I'd like to think the redwoods are waiting. They're waiting for a better climate. But they used to be everywhere. Now they're just along California. And it's like not even very long. Like what is it, like 70 miles or something? No, it's more than that. It's 370 miles. Something like that. I looked it up and a Save the Redwoods League page titled Coast Redwood Facts says it's just a very narrow 450 mile stretch of land. I'll link that page in the show notes because it's full of great information about coast redwood trees, including things like the tannins in their bark and their fire adaptations, a lot of which will be familiar to you if you listen to the giant sequoia episode of this podcast, because of course sequoias are closely related to coast redwoods like Griff just mentioned. So if you get done with this episode and you need more redwood content, dig into the archives and check out the giant sequoia episode next. So it's just a strip of California. It's basically the they poke into Oregon? Barely. Barely. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I'm a seventh generation Californian. Sometimes I think we should just go and take over that part of Oregon. <laughs> so we can have all the redwoods to ourselves. <laughs> just draw a circle around yes. the, the northern Because it's ba country. they're barely in Oregon. Yeah. Like it's barely there. They're dipping a toe in. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways. And then all the giant sequoias are California too. Oh, in California too, yeah. That's wild. Yeah. We've got the, and the bristlecone pines. And the bristlecone pines. I know. California is the est state. Largest, biggest, yes. oldest, coolest, most diversest. <laughs> you know, like, we have it. We're the coolest place. This is a place to be a naturalist. It really is. Okay. How tall is the tallest coast redwood, and what's a more average height for a tall, mature tree? Let me confess that when people ask me that, when I'm in the park, and mm -hmm. people ask me that question, I usually point to the nearest big redwood and go, what a coincidence, here it is right here. Because I have learned to resent that question. Oh, I have. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like, it's not cool until you find the tallest one. Give me a break. Yeah, it's not no, the trees fair. that make this place cool, it's the relationships that make this place mm -hmm. cool. I mean, the trees are cool, but the relationships built on these trees are what make the forest really cool. The tallest tree is probably Hyperion still. 
which is like what, 382 feet oh, or something like that? Oh, it's tall, yeah, it's like almost 400. But it's yeah. like you, and, and, and just so you know, redwoods will never get taller than 400 feet because gravity pulls the water down. Oh. So like, yeah, so if we're waiting for the, when if anybody goes, I saw a tree that was 475 foot tall, I'll be like, in your dreams you did. Mm. Because they don't get that tall unless the gravity changes. But Hyperion's probably tall, but you know, it can change in a minute. Okay, it's wind whipping up there. Mm. A lot of times when there's during drought years, they'll cut off the top. They'll be like, sorry, top, we're not yeah. taking water up there anymore. And then it'll be a spike top and that will crack off. And then they'll re-sprout out of the sides because redwoods are amazing re-sprouters. And so mm-hmm. they, can, they can trunk sprout, stump sprout, root sprout. Then someone can set up a new leader and it could become the tallest tree. So I think, right. the, I think the tallest tree probably changes. It's dynamic. Every five, yeah, super yeah. dynamic. So it's just for our own sense of satisfaction and being able to come along with our measuring tapes and feel good about it. But for those of you who are listening who are like, I'm a tall tree seeker and that's the only reason why I would support Save the Red League. Okay, 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 okay. Don't let me turn you (laughs) off. Go to the Titan Grove. And we just built a a new trail there that our trail crew did. We had an awesome trail crew. A lot of of those trail crew members and the reason why they're so awesome is because I trained a lot of them, yay, Yay! in the California Conservation (laughs) Corps. But no, that's why they're so good. They were awesome before that. But anyways, <laughs> they built this incredible trail that's elevated. So that you don't crush the roots? So you don't crush the roots or the plants. Amazing. Yeah, and you can see through it. So it's like so off light the ground. Goes through. Yeah, so light goes through, and it is amazing. So if you want to see the tallest trees in the world, go there. Or Rockefeller Forest and Humboldt Redwood State Park okay. has like most, I don't know what it is now, but the last publication I read, there's like 70 of the world's 100 tallest trees are in Rockefeller mm-hmm. Forest or something like that. It's pretty crazy. Like That is crazy. Yeah. But Titan Grove has a lot in a short dis- in a short area. Okay. And, so if um, you're short on time, maybe, and you're in the area. And like, you're in the area, Titan Grove. And also the tops are more complex. So a lot Humboldt Redwood State Park is more protected from winds and stuff like that. So they don't have the complex canopies that the northern forest, coastal forest do. So Titan has just like amazing Ooh, tops. Trees with character. Super character, like nice. ants. Ooh, like, I love like that. Like the ant gods. Like if the ants had gods, they're in the Titan Grove. Griff hit his prime demo with this comment because I had literally been listening to one of the Lord of the Rings audiobooks on my way up to Humboldt County. Also, I'm still really sad about the ant wives. So speaking of the way that they re-sprout when the tops come off, they also do that at the base. So is that like, what's their strategy? What's going on? Is that like one way that they reproduce or what's going on? That's the main way they reproduce after logging. Yeah, after logging. A Mm -hmm. lot of the times it's just stump sprouts. So when you go back and you log the second time. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing that blows my mind. Say like you and I went out right now and we took giant chainsaws and we cut down a 2,000-year-old tree. Mm -hmm. Because that's who we were. (laughs) And... We counted the rings and we went, wow, this tree was 2,000 years old, cool, high five. And we left. And then that stump may stump sprout. Usually when they're really old, they don't stump sprout as, mm-hmm. as much, but just say this one did. And so it's stump sprout and say, so it's 2,000 years later, your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-
um, so imagine that like if if I got into a terrible accident and half of me got cut off and I could sprout new griffs out of my butt and now there's like <laughs> you know now there's like the seven headed griff or those could break off and get in the ground and now there's five independent griffs you know which is different from the griff that you pooped the seed out so like redwoods can do these magical magical things and they're super old yeah. as a species they're really really old i was here when they filmed Jurassic Park Part Two, oh, and I worked for state parks then too as a seasonal trail crew restorationist. I was 26, 27. I was all buff back then, had some hair, everything was cool. And I asked one of the twelve assistant directors, "How come you guys chose to film Jurassic Park Part Two in the redwoods?" And he said, "Because dinosaurs lived in the redwoods." And there's some disagreement about that. It's like right on the line. Yeah. But uh, of coast redwoods, but coast redwoods. Ancestors definitely had dinosaurs inside of wow. them. It's one of the oldest. It's one of the oldest lines. And they they were so widespread that it could have been anywhere on the. Or oh yeah, many all kinds of dinosaurs. You know, like all kinds of different kinds of dinosaurs. So redwoods as a species have been here for millions of years, right. and now we have to make sure that they're here for millions more. And that's kind of what I want people to understand: is we are humans are part of nature. We're a force of nature, and we can be a terrible tsunami that gets on CNN, or we could be something really, really awesome that gets on every channel because we rock so hard. And the way we do that is we manage for perpetual forests, mm -hmm. okay? We can still log them. We just don't clear cut them and then spray them and make them into monocultures like we did here. We, mm -hmm. we sprayed and then we sprayed 240, the broadleaf killer. So just it became a lot of these redwood forests became plantations oh. or they they didn't appreciate redwoods at the time, so they helicopter-seeded dug firs. And that's what we're finding in the park is that a lot of the lumber companies helicopter-seeded dug firs. And so you have dug firs growing so close together. Mm. And that's the reason why Bigfoot, we never see him anymore because he can't squeeze through that forest. Oh, no. That's what I tell people. Bigfoot. Bigfoot. He's walked away in there somewhere. I, he's, he left. He's like, oh, this forest sucks. I'm, I'm going to start talking to people about, because there's people who really believe in Bigfoot. If oh, you believe in Bigfoot, no offense. But I've just been, a, I've worked with too many wildlife biologists and been a biologist myself. Like, we would have found Bigfoot. Yeah. Now. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I mean, the squirrel five years ago. Yeah. It's tiny. It's, it's nocturnal. Tiny. It's like 300 it feet. It looks like another squirrel. It looks, <laughs> it looks just like the northern yeah. flying squirrel. I mean, you know. So, I mean, not just, but very close. From I mean, 300 feet away. You got to get a UV light and see who's yeah. going pink. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But I don't know, maybe northern flying squirrels glow pink too. But anyways, what I like to tell people is like, Bigfoot wouldn't live here because the trees are too close together. Mm. They shaded the ground out. There's no berries growing on the ground anymore. Okay. And if this catches on fire, it's going to burn all the way down. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we've totally messed up the fire regime. And you know what? It has everything to do with colonization. It really does. Just a heads up real quick. The next two minutes gets into some of the history of what colonizers did to indigenous people in California. One specific event is mentioned, but it's not described in graphic detail. This information is super important and relevant to every conversation about how we relate to this place, but I wanted to let you know that it was coming so you can choose how to handle it. We get into a solutions-oriented conversation about how to proceed from this current moment in two minutes, if that's where you need to go. Like my people, and I'm, I'm direct descendant from old school colonizers to North America and more recently Irish immigrants, mm -hmm. which were also colonized people. But it's really weird what happened out here. Manifest destiny and everything that happened to Native Americans everywhere else was just practice for the horrificness 
unfathomable, unacceptable horrificness that, that unfolded here. It is so bad that people don't even want to hear it. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it's so bad people don't even want to hear it. And it wasn't just done to the people, it was done to the place. And the way that the people here thought about Redwoods and the ecosystem for thousands of years was in a way that my Western mind just can't even really, mm. I can't understand it. Like mm -hmm. I've had native people explain it to me so many times, but it's just like, I'm so Westernized. But they saw everything, it, it was very horizontal. It wasn't a hierarchy, mm. like like European culture, like right. my, my culture was. It was more of a horizontal thing. So like Chapui, the Yurok word for salmon, that was like their brother. Right. You know, that was not, not, not something they just hunted and killed. They had a whole relationship ceremony, like like rituals, very artistic rituals, ceremony societies that had relationships that the colonizers could not possibly have fathomed because I can't fathom it now. And you can tell by what they did. They, they killed those people. They killed them. Like there's tribes in Northern California that are extinct. And right here, about a mile from where we're sitting, two miles from where we're sitting, it's like the second biggest massacre in the United States, the Talawa people. And the Talawa people had a relationship, all the native Californians had relationships with their regions that were so complex that PhDs are just now unfolding what the traditional ecological managers knew. And, and like, I often talk to my Yurok friends about their land management. They're like, we didn't have land management. We had land relationships. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm a listener. This is how I understand it. But we need to have relationships. And so what I think is important for the restoration of the forest is not just putting in salmon habitat structures. It's not just removing roads. It's not just planting trees, not just thinning out forests. It's giving the ceremonial sites back to the indigenous people. It's, it's giving that land back mm -hmm. so they can go have these rituals and these ceremonies because they were integral to the ecology of this place their spirituality and the ecology were so joined in a way that I can't fully fathom, but I, I can fathom it enough to know that we need to give them their ceremonial places back, these spiritual places where they did these ceremonies. We need to give all those places back. Well, and we don't have to understand everything about it to know that it was working. Yes. Right? Like, this was working. Yes. Maybe it can work again. Yeah. Let's try it. Yeah. There was shamans who would go... I think the Karuk tribe, I think I heard this from a Karuk tribal member, that the shamans would go up to this mountain and they would set this log on fire and roll it downhill as part of the ceremony. Whoa. And it would burn all the way back up. And that would maintain this beautiful oak woodland, oak savanna that provides tons of food because acorns were the rice, you know, they were the wheat of this area. And so, and they drank so much less water than the coniferous forests, the dug fir forests that have invaded and taken over since. And so there was a lot more water in the stream. So there's a lot more salmon, like the relationships they had with the land, they were thousands and thousands of years old. So they had it worked out. You know, the longer you get into a relationship mm -hmm. with your loving partner, the better you can work things out. That's what they had going on here. And when white people came, when Americans came, Western minded people came, they didn't recognize any of those relationships. They saw this place as an Eden that the brown people were squatting on. Oh. This park-like environment that the Native Americans aren't using. Like they're not using it anyways. So let's just take it. Let's just take it. Because they couldn't even recognize that this whole entire place was a garden. There was no wilderness in California. There was no wilderness in California. If you want to know more about these complex and incredible relationships between California indigenous people and the land, check out MCAT Anderson's book, Tending the Wild. 
I frequently use it as a reference book because it's packed with information on indigenous land management and lots of specific examples of the ways different species were used pre-contact and how people ensured that those species would remain plentiful for future use. Again, that book is Tending the Wild by MCAT Anderson, in case you want to check it out. Every square inch of this land had a relationship with people and it needs to have that again, mm -hmm. but with healthy people. And so I think that giving the land back is a step so they can have the rituals and ceremonies so we can start listening to them about traditional ecological knowledge, incorporating more of that into our management style. And if we do that, we'll have perpetual forests that we can continue logging forever. We'll have perpetual salmon that we can continue fishing forever. We'll have perpetual acorns that we can eat in case of an apocalypse, because you know, like a lot of people don't like the taste of acorn meal. We gotta mm -hmm. season it because we're spoiled. Modern people For are sure. spoiled. You know, yeah. <laughs> we can go down and get some cilantro, yeah. <laughs> put some cilantro on that acorn. You know, I think cilantro makes everything taste better. Oh, I agree. So. I think that if, if for no other reason, if you don't care about like restoring indigenous people to their, you know, their ceremonial place, if you don't care about like restoring the forest or anything like, at least care about the apocalypse that might be coming. And we need to have some fish to eat. We need to have some acorns to eat. We need to have a diverse medicinal cabinet in our forest floors. And we're not going to have that medicinal cabinet growing on our forest floors. The trees are so close together, they shade everything out. We need to go through and thin out those forests, those colonial forests. We need okay. to go and thin them out. I had a question about that, about second growth redwood actually, and how mm -hmm. that should be managed mm -hmm. because those trees can grow really close together too. So would yeah. you say the same thing about second growth redwood? Yes, you can't walk away. Like we can't, you, you can't walk away and be like, nature will heal. You know, <laughs> it'll change into something else. And, right. and, and maybe in 10,000 years, it'll be biodiverse again. But we've caused climate disruption. We've got 4% of these places left. Like we have to connect them. We have to keep them healthy. We have to help them heal faster. Right. Okay, we gotta rub some Vaseline on that and put a Band-Aid on it. We don't need to just be like, bounce, bye. Don't pick a scab. You know, we need to we need to be there with it and having a relationship with it. So yeah, we need to thin we need to thin out the redwoods when when, when they come back too thick. We need to stop aerial seeding. We need to be much more strategic about it, and not just because of wildfires. And that's a lot of times what gets people's attention now. You can just skip all the ecological stuff and be like, this is going to burn hot and get to your house. And people are like, oh, thin it out, thin it out. But there's a million reasons to thin it out because the biodiversity helping it get old growth characteristics faster. Because mm. people think there's a lot of definitions for old growth. Mm. The definition I use is that it has characteristics that support its original set of partners. You know, okay. the same lichen, the same. It, it, it's it, ecosystem based. It's, it, yeah. Okay. So like it could be 300 years old as long as it's performing the functions that it did, uh, that a healthy uncut forest does, mm -hmm. then it's, it's old growth at that point. So if it has dead wood on the ground, it has standing dead trees, it's got live trees, multiple ages, it's old growth forest. And, and it's old, you know, at least a couple hundred years old. Mm -hmm. And those are, play, those are functioning ecosystems that help us, that we get our environmental ecosystem services ecosystem from. Services. I don't know how I feel about ecosystem yeah, services. Yeah, yeah, I have like, mixed feelings too. Yeah. yeah, but you know, if it works for you listeners, then stick with it. You yeah. know, like whatever works. Honestly, whatever helps you just connect. be kind to the trees. Yeah. Like, whatever <laughs> yeah. makes you be kind to the trees. Yeah, they're <laughs> sequestering great. carbon, they're blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah, whatever reason you need. And some people don't need any reasons. Like, it's funny because some people, they got just, I don't know, they have a different soul or something and mm -hmm. they just walk out and I don't have to tell them anything. Right. They just go out there and they go, oh, yep. 
and they had this look, and I'm like, do you just want to go for a walk by yourself? And they're like, nodding, yes. <laughs> yes. And I'm like, I bet you you're going to be a speaker for the Redwoods for the rest of your life. And they're like, yes. And away they go, and there's, there are those people. Yeah. God bless them. And there's others that need the environmental services. Mm-hmm. And I could list them out for them anytime they want. Yeah. Because there's a bunch. There's, there's so many. Yeah. They're all there. Oh, I had an interesting question because we talked a little bit about the overstory, Mm -hmm. but somebody was asking, Twyla was wondering about the understory. So the question is, can you tell us about the relationship between redwood sorrel and redwood trees and or anything about the understory? The overstory gets a lot of play, but I'm endlessly fascinated by the understory, long, quiet, symbiotic relationships with the earth and air and light and water. Twyla, extra points for redwood sorrel mentioned because like sorrel sorrel I, I say it both ways okay oxalis oregano there's a lot of oxalises there's actually an invasive one in california it has yellow flowers i eat that when and I see it, it tastes good mm-hmm. and you can eat the redwood sorrel too mm-hmm. uh redwood sorrel is a photosynthesizing champion Ooh. it only needs like that much light that much light to photosynthesize because it's living underneath the darkest trees, you know, with yeah. billions of leaves per stock, you know. And so when they get too much light, they actually fold down. Really? Because they don't want too much They're light. Like, no, and if it gets way too much light, they'll die. Yeah. So these these guys are a lot of the plants in the redwood forest can also drink through the leaves and they can also photosynthesize with very little light. And what I tell people, because I, I talk to people, you know, I was an interpreter for the last few years. And so people would come to the park and I take them for walks and I did programs and stuff like yeah. that. And sometimes I'd say, if anybody's looking for a new God, I have one for you. It's photosynthesis because it's magical. Like I don't, you don't even need sci-fi channel, you, you know, so true. You don't even, because you don't even need to make up some crazy stuff. <laughs> you don't even need to make up. You know, if you want a new God, here it is photosynthesis because it takes air and a leaf yeah. takes air and sunlight and turns it into sugar. Yeah. Which is the reason why life exists on the planet. And I can eat it and it gives me energy. Yeah. And you're just and carrying you just, around. It's just sunlight. It's just like captured sunlight, you know? It's like, we're like a battery. And so sometimes I think I, I'm, I get so tripped out about it because, <laughs> and people are like, oh, his one, yeah, he, you said he was up there in Humboldt County. We can see what he's doing. No, but what it, the more I learn about science, the more I learn about redwood trees, the crazier it gets, especially when I live in a redwood forest. And so like, mm. if, you're, if you live in Arcata and in the towns around here, you're, you're eating a lot of local food. And so it's, it's all from photosynthesis, mm-hmm. you know, so right here. And then you're watering that with Mad River water. Plus you're drinking Mad River water. So you're carrying around this like sunlight inside of you. Every human being is carrying around all the sunlight. But if you know which river your water comes from, that's your closest relative by weight. Hmm. You know, cause it's like, you're like 80 some percent water. Right. And so like, I, I was living in Ill River watershed. So I was like 80 some percent Ill River. So when I seen, and I, you know, I got my 23 and me and found out I was super Irish. I already knew that. Yeah. <laughs> but you find out all the other little parts of things you are. Right. But the 23 and me by weight would say I was Ill River. A hundred percent, you know, or close to a hundred percent. So in the redwoods, everything is related to the water. Okay. And then the photosynthesis and then the leaves are falling down and they're breaking down and on the understory and on the floor. And so you get like feet of this duff uh, Mm. and leaves. And so the, the plants have to get through that to get to the soil. And that's why a lot of redwoods don't start from seeds because it lands on that Duff and it dry the root dries out before it gets to the soil. So if it didn't have stump sprouting and root sprouting and all that kind of stuff, there'd be a whole lot less redwoods probably. Wow. 
And so until you get a fire that goes through and it burns out that duff and then, or a flood and deposits alluvial you know, deposits on there and then you can get the seedlings. But in the understory, there is so much happening in that duff. There's so much fungi relationships and we don't even want to touch on that right now because the studies that are coming out right now, like I just can't even believe them. I'm waiting. I need more. I need yeah. more consensus. I just, I do like, you know, the things about like the trees supporting like feeding each other mm -hmm. and like having relations with relatives and all this kind of stuff. You know, the whole like who Suzanne Sigma thing and the secret life of trees book and all that stuff. These, those studies. The wood wide web. Yeah. All that stuff is so fascinating to me. And that's, what's going to keep being in the old growth redwood fascinating for me for the rest of my life mm -hmm. is that we're still discovering amazing things like that. I know I went all over the place because we started talking about photosynthesis and I blew my own mind. <laughs> it's mind blowing every time, okay? It is. It really every is. time I think about it, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm made of stardust, water that's existed like since the Big Bang or before. I mean, it's just like bizarre when you think about it. Yeah. So, and then there's this ancient, ancient forest that's been living on this, you know, living for millions of years and there's only 4% of it. And I'm out here trying to restore and be a part of it. And it just yeah. feels like a blessing. Yeah. Well, and another part of what you're doing is advocating, right? And so I know that for you, not only is the advocacy important, but the mm -hmm. way that it's done. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about like what, what is kind of your idea of how we should be advocating for these forests? Well, conservation was a lifestyle of the rich and famous for a very long time because like my Irish ancestors didn't have time to contemplate photosynthesis. They were trying not to starve to death and let alone trying to be conservationists. Like they had their cultural ways that there was some conservation practice built into it, mm -hmm. but they weren't out like protesting whaling or anything, right? you know, because they were trying to feed their kids. So conservation started among the wealthy. People had time. It was a privilege to be a conservationist. Now it's essential that we all be conservationists, okay? For a million reasons that I probably don't even need to explain to your audience. So one of the things we have to do is realize the way that conservation has been taught, has been taught for the lifestyle of the rich and famous and not mm -hmm. for, the, it's not relevant to the regular, you know, poor Irish immigrants. Yes. <laughs> you know? So. People who wash their own dishes. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> so we have to make it relevant. And I think that scaring people doesn't work anymore because that worked really mm -hmm. good in the eighties. Like the sky is falling, I mean the ozone layer is falling and blah, 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 and, you know. And those things, they worked on me. Mm -hmm. I was like, fight, fight, we gotta fight against this, you know, we gotta save the planet and blah, 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 and that worked. But you know, I'm Generation X. I think about the millennials, they have lived through a lot of apocalypses, Y2K, the end of the Mayan calendar, and you know, and Gen Z too. And then we got a president who was like, had a new drama every day, and there's technology now, they can see drama from anywhere around the world instantly, 24 hour news, social media. You ain't gonna shock these people and scare these people into nothing, they seen it all. Been inundated. Yeah, Absolutely. 18 year olds now have seen more in their 18 years without leaving the house than World War II veterans probably, <laughs> you know, it's like, maybe not as intense, but yeah. like they've seen more. Right. And so that tactic doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. It's got its moments, but we have to connect people in a way that they feel like they're having a relationship with nature and they have to be able to do that wherever they're at. They shouldn't have to come to the Redwoods. You don't have to come to the Redwoods. I'll make videos for you, but there are things that are nesting in the Redwoods that fly over your house that migrate from here to South America or from here to the Arctic that have to fly over our concrete and our pavement. Mm. And they might not have a mobile home park with a grandma like mine where they can land and eat some berries. Mm -hmm. So you are connected to the redwoods if you're in, on the West Coast directly because the things that contribute 
nitrogen and seed dispersal, all those things to the redwood forest are gonna land in your backyard sooner or later. And I hope that you have native plants there for them to eat it because they have a long journey and there's so few places to land that don't have cats, window strikes, mm. confusing lights, or tons of these decoration plants from other places that don't support any insects or don't bury at the right time mm. or have poisonous berries right. like Nandina, which is in every Taco Bell parking lot in the world. So you can help the redwoods. You can help me with the redwood rising just by planting native plants in your yard because everything really is connected. And some of it's connected by beautiful yellow birds, small yellow birds with black caps, Wilson's warblers that nest in the redwood forest and fly over your house on their way down to Southern mm -hmm. Mexico. And if you could provide some oak trees and other things for them to get some insects from, I would really appreciate it. Give those birds a snack. Give those birds a snack yeah. and a break. Keep your cat indoors, yes. you know, and yes. put some dots on your windows. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, there's a go to, yeah. Listen to some more of these podcasts and you'll get some yeah, more, ideas. more ideas, more tips. Yeah, totally. So instead of essentially scaring and shaming people into action, as has been the tactic mm -hmm. for a very long time, it's empowering people to take action. To have a relationship. And we don't want to like appropriate anybody's culture, but we mm -hmm. definitely want to listen to the elders of, of the tribes in your area mm -hmm. because they can tell you stories. Most of them can tell you stories. Like, and don't assume that every indigenous person is going to have all this wise knowledge mm -hmm. because it was all stolen from them and kept from them. They were put in schools and stuff. So a lot of them don't know and they're just trying to reclaim their own culture right now. So it depends on which tribe you're around. So mm -hmm. like... Don't go thinking that the Native Americans are going to have all the other all the answers because it really depends on which tribe it is and and what kind of you know massacres and schoolings and enslavement they suffered. Mm -hmm. But in this area, we're very very fortunate to have a lot of like the Karuk tribe and the, and the Talawa and the Yurok, which have maintained a lot of their cultural practices in spite mm -hmm. of the horrible things that were done mm -hmm. to them. And so we're able to learn from them, and it's just like an aha moment. And it, it, it makes me wonder, like when my ancestors came here, like how much different California would have been today if they would have listened to the native mm. people. Like we wouldn't have four percent of the old growth redwood forest left. We wouldn't. We wouldn't have endangered salmon. We would have tons of salmon. We'd be eating salmon right now. Mm -hmm. You know, and they wouldn't mm -hmm. be farm raised. They'd be caught in this creek right here. This creek right here, actually, in front of my house, has steelhead in it still. Oh. Yeah. So it's it's pretty cool. That's good. But. I wish things could have been different. Mm -hmm. I think for me personally, a lot of these messages have been incredibly healing. Yes. Because I think that being raised through that era of the 80s and 90s of like humans are the problem and it's, it's like this big finger pointing at yeah, you, yeah. right? And you're like, I'm nine. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, and I... you shouldn't be getting in the creek and you shouldn't. And, right. you, and, and that's, where, that's where I'm different mm. than the old, that's what I call my new interpretation. Yeah. I'm like, no, touch that. No, get in that creek. Mm -hmm. No, have a relationship with this. Have a relationship with this. You know, learn how to fight fires and do prescribed burns or cultural burns. You know, whatever's clever. And have a relationship with these things. Pull, a, I remember one time I pulled a, a leaf off a bay tree in the forest mm. so that everybody could smell it and I could talk about it. And this lady's like, you just pull the leaf off the tree. And I was like, yeah, can you imagine had I been a giant ground sloth that used to live here years ago, what I would have done to this tree? Mm. Or a mammoth? Or, you know, like, no kidding. You know, like, like these forests, we don't want to clear cut them, but disturbance is what they all evolved with. Right. Okay. And the more you disturb, the more you, you make a redwood be resilient, the more life it can support because it branches out. And it's like our human bodies. The more resistance you do with some weights, the more beautiful your mm. body gets, the more healthy you get. It's the same way with a lot of other organisms too. The more they're challenged and experience life, they, the more complex they get. 
you know, and the more life they can support. So like humans need to get out there. We don't need to like destroy things. We need to be aware of our impact, but we do need to be riding our bikes out there. We do need to be hiking out there. We do need to be walking our dogs out there on a leash, please. And not in the park. Mm, and um, pick up after it. And pick up after it. <laughs> <laughs> but we do need to be having a relationship with, we do need to be swimming. We do need to be taking our kids, you know, out in, on canoes if we can afford to, you know, we need to be doing these things because people don't care about what they don't understand. And, and if you have a relationship with um, the forest, you're going to protect it more. And I have a great example, a little story about that. Bidwell Park and Chico used to get hammered really, really bad. And salmon would come up it and people would just like poach them or just like mm. throw rocks at them. It's just crazy oh, stuff. No. And they would ruin the trees and stuff. And so the uh, people, they're called the Streamminders, And they were from, a lot of them were from the, they were native people from the Four Winds School. And they would do salmon in the classroom with kids. And they hired me, so I'd do salmon in the classroom with kids. And, but we'd also go out to these sites along Bidwell Creek. And we plant plants. Sometimes just, you know, you know, a bunch of second graders, you might plant three things. Yeah. But the thing about it is, is those second graders grew up knowing they planted those three things or those five mm -hmm. things, those 10 things. They're invested. But also we took, when it was time to release the salmon into the creek, we took them back to the place where they planted those trees. And when I go to Bidwell Park today, there is so much less vandalism than there mm. was in the 90s. And I really believe, and I wish there was funding to prove this, I really think it's because a whole generation of kids grew up connected to that place because they interacted with it. We want kids to interact with nature. We want them to be part of the healing of nature. Like our grandparents and our parents and us destroyed it, if you're a European anyways, you know, European descent in, in California. And, but we can definitely be part of the healing of it. And we can listen to the indigenous people to get cues on how to do that. And we can go out and do it, have a relationship. The Native American people had relationships with all these things. They, there wasn't, like I said before, there was no wilderness. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to reestablish that. And so that's kind of what I'm proposing for people is like, when they come up here, can I get in the creek? You should put on a snorkel and a mask <laughs> yes. and go look at some stuff. Get a little net, catch some stuff, look at it, put it back. But, you know, like, go exploring, find out what lives there. I did that. Yeah. You know, that's, I think, all the great active conservationists I have ever heard from or read about or talked to had jars full of tadpoles. I had some ill-fated <laughs> tadpoles in my, <laughs> yeah. my yard. Ill-fated, yeah. for sure. <laughs> I, one thing I love to see is I love to see parents with kids in the park. Mm -hmm. Love to see that. And people often say, like, oh, I can't do what you're doing because I have kids. I'm like, no, you can do way more than I'm doing with kids because that's what creates conservationists is, you know, a, a lot of times it's like families. Right. So when I love to see parents with their kids, I always thank parents when I see them with their kids in the park. Thank you so much for bringing your kids because that's how it gets started. And you know, I, my parents had enough money to get us out camping and stuff like that. You know, I, and, and so I wish that there was all kids had that opportunity. Yeah. All kids don't. There are gear libraries. We have Ooh. fam camp in our park. So like groups can, groups can come up together, get trained and they, and, and we give them this trailer and it's full of tents and stoves and Dude. water filters and everything you need. And so those do exist. But if you can't do that, if you can't afford, if you're listening to this and you can't afford to take your kids, you know, build a birdhouse, mm. put a little water feature in your yard, throw some tadpoles in there, plant some native plants, record what comes there, get iNaturalist, you know, like you can, nature can be wherever you want it to be. Mm -hmm. And nature needs to be in those places too. So, you know, you can still have your nature experiences with your kids. And there's so many resources online now. You could just go onto YouTube and be like, how do I connect with my kids to nature in the city? And you, there'll be a million videos yeah. pop up. So like the resources are there. Yeah, that's so true. Okay, last question for you. Okay. What about Redwoods still takes your breath away? <sighs> hmm. Honestly, 
the thing that takes my breath away about redwood trees is seeing the effect they have on humans. Mm. I love to see first-time experiences in the redwoods, or any, any nature first-time experience. Mm -hmm. And I was a supervisor for the California Conservation Corps for almost 20 years, and so I got to do this all the time. And I love it. If I was addicted to anything, it's watching someone experience, you know, something really cool in nature for the yeah. first time. Like the first time I pick up a toad or a snake or see redwoods. Yes. But I love it when I'm, you know, cause I was an interpreter for state parks and I'd stand there. I still am. And I'd stand in, you know, like just off, off the parking lot and, I, and, the, and I'd see people get out of their cars and just be like, wow. And just like look around. And, and I love the awe-inspired facial expressions. I love those. Mm -hmm. And I know they're having a dopamine rush or something. Yes. You know? And like, <laughs> I love seeing people experience that. And mm -hmm. Redwoods invoke that on a level that few other things do, especially when you're in an old growth redwood forest mm -hmm. and there's a bunch of them and you're in amongst them all. You really get, it makes you be present, mm -hmm. you know? And, and it's so hard for us to be present these days. Like you gotta get, meditate, go to yoga, mm -hmm. buy a pill, do something, listen to the audio book, something. You gotta do something to get present, you know? It's <laughs> because we're in a rush, 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 westernized society. Right. And so even people who don't know that they're never present suddenly become less present when they're in the redwoods and I can see it on them. And I could hear it on them. You know, their, vo their voices get, you know, the deeper we get in the forest, the calmer and quieter. And, you know, they start to sound like NPR hosts. <laughs> <laughs> they just get, they get so, like, mellow and airy in there, you know. And I love it. I love it. That's probably the thing I like most about Redwoods is their magical power they have on people. That's beautiful. Well, Griff, thank you so much. Thanks uh, thank for having you. me out and taking all the time to talk with me. Thanks you. for driving all the way out here. It's pretty rad. <laughs> I, I loved it. It was great. Yeah, this is, this is heaven. That's, that's my address. It's heaven. heaven. <laughs> maybe you've had the chance to visit the heaven that is the old growth redwoods, or maybe you found different versions of heaven where you live. Either way, I find Griff's appreciation for these incredible beings and the ecosystems they're part of to be infectious. If you want to learn more from Griff, there are many ways to do that. You can follow him on both Facebook and TikTok at Griff Wild for his personal accounts and at Redwoods Rising for his role as spokesperson for Redwoods Rising. And his TikToks there have millions of views. They're so good. If you'd prefer something more immersive and maybe you live in the northwestern part of the state or you're planning a visit to Humboldt County, you can meet Griff and learn from him directly in the Redwood Forest on a guided walk. To do that, go check out redwoodsightseeingtours.com. I can tell you from personal experience that Griff is just as delightful in person as he was on this podcast, and his depth of knowledge is stunning. As far as I know, they won't have these walks over the winter, so whenever you're listening to this, just make sure to check the available dates. And if you're in LA, Griff will also be down there for Wildlife to Watts and P22 Day. So make sure to join in on those events and bring the kids in your life with you because they'll be super fun. And I'm guessing here, but you might even get to see Miguel Ordignana, the guest from the Urban Ecology episodes who first discovered the mountain lion living in LA. And if you're listening to this after all of those events are over, that's okay. Go follow Griff on social media and see what else he's up to, because there's a good chance he'll be doing something great and you can join in on the fun. Speaking of the great things that Griff is doing, he's teaming up with my friend Michael Hawk of Nature's Archive to start a new podcast called Jumpstart Nature. The preview episode for that is already out and it sounds incredible. So definitely go give it a follow on Apple Podcasts or subscribe on Spotify because it's going to be so good and I'll be listening to every episode. One more fun fact before we go. 
the day this episode is releasing is also the fifth anniversary of Redwoods Rising, which is amazing. And let's all just agree was not just a coincidence and that I totally have my life together enough to know about and plan for things like this in advance. Anyway, I have so much gratitude for this organization and the absolutely next level scale of restoration work they're doing. If you feel the same way, I hope you'll consider making a tax-deductible donation to them. You can donate right on their website at redwoodsrising.com. I just made a little donation and it took 30 seconds, so super easy. I want to thank Griff for making this episode possible and for giving me the pro tip that Prairie Creek Redwoods State Park is the place to take little kids because it doesn't have poison oak. Look, I love and admire poison oak from a distance. But my kids are still in the touch everything phase, so Prairie Creek was perfect for us. And now you also know this tip if you have young ones in your life and want to see the Redwoods. If you listen to the very end of the episode, I always tell you something from my week. And this week, it's that on Saturday, Stan and I tried to take our kids to not one, but two separate playgrounds that both turned out to be fenced and closed for repairs when we arrived. The kids were initially sad, but managed to make the most of it and find other ways to play. But I stayed sad and a little bit grumpy about our day not going the way that I imagined it. Anyway, we went to Gunther's for ice cream and I felt much better. So I'm not saying that we should use treats to solve our problems, but I am saying that in this one particular case, a treat solved my problem. Okay, that's all for this episode. I cannot wait to see you on the next episode of Golden State Naturalist. Bye. The song is called I Dunno by Grapes, and you can find the link to that as well as the Creative Commons license in the show notes.